MSW Media. Season four of How We Win is here. For the past four years, we've been making history in critical elections all over the country. And last year, we made history again by expanding our majority in the Senate, eating election-denying Republicans in crucial state house races, and fighting back a non-existent red wave. But the MAGA Republicans who plotted and pardoned the attempted overthrow of our government now control the House, thanks to gerrymandered maps and repressive anti-voter laws. And the chaotic spectacle we've already seen shows us just how far they will go to seize power, dismantle our government, and take away our freedoms. So the official podcast of The Persistence is back with season four. There's so much more important work ahead of us to fight for equity, justice, and our very democracy itself. We'll take you behind the lines and inside the rooms where it happens with strategy and inspiration from progressive changemakers all over the country. And we'll dig deep into the weekly news that matters most and what you can do about it with messaging and communications expert, co-founder of Way to Win, and our new co-host, Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. So join Steve and I every Wednesday for your weekly dose of inspiration, action, and hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And And this this is is How We Win. Win. just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Everybody, welcome to Clean Up on Aisle 45 for Wednesday, March 30th. This is episode 63, and I am your host, your co-host, Allison Gill. And joining me, as always, is your co-host, Andrew Torres. Andrew, how is your Monday going? (laughs) You know, today's been a good day if you're a believer in democracy and also schadenfreude. Um, <laughs> it's, I, you know, today's smoking gun day, so I'm uh, I'm pretty good. Uh, how are you? Whew, yeah, feeling good, Lewis, as I said <laughs> at the top here before we started recording. I am down for any and all Trading Places references throughout this record. Yes, because two rich dudes are about to go down. And so <laughs> it's really, it's a, good, it's a good day. And let me just give you a little, a little quick background here, because we know we've been wanting, the committee wants Eastman's emails that he wrote on Chapman's server. And uh, they went through the the important ones that were sent between January 4th and January 7th. And there were 111 emails that, that Eastman said, no, 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 these are privileged. 
And the judge said, you know, I'm just going to take a look-see because uh, mm-hmm. y- you suck and I don't believe you. Uh, In-camera review um, is what they call that. And uh, he, it's been a while. It, it's been a while. And, and you and I were like, what's taking so long? We figured must be writing out this monster ruling, which is what we got today. And so there were 111 emails, okay, that he had, that the judge had to go through. And he ran them through those seven filters. Remember the seven filters that I talked about, you talked about, the committee submitted this giant filing saying, you know, crime fraud exception is one of these seven reasons. And the court here goes through those seven, runs the 111 emails through those seven filters. And it comes out, what we come out with on the other side is one email. <laughs> and and, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's a doozy, as, as Ned Needlehead, Needlenose Ned, Ned the Head would say in, in uh, Groundhog Day. So uh, 96 of them didn't make it past the work product privilege doctrine, which means they, they aren't in anticipation of litigation. And, you know, there was like 19 of them were sent to, I mean, they, they, they break it all down, but the, these, yeah. these are not covered uh, by privilege. So then they run it through the Chapman University has no expectation of privacy filter. And the judge says, no, you know what? This doesn't fly because the clients on the other end of those emails do have an expectation of privacy. And I'm glad that the court decided that because, you know, if you're Joe Schmo emailing with your lawyer at Chapman, you do, you should have uh, an expectation of privacy, even if the even if your lawyer is isn't an asshole and doesn't tell you that there isn't. Don't, don't hire John Eastman as your lawyer <laughs> still, but then they run it through um, the second test, which was the engagement letter. Remember how they didn't have a signed engagement letter and the judges look, it's obvious that, that uh, Eastman is representing Trump. So we don't need an engagement letter. Also a good decision if you ever if the shoes on the ever on the other foot. Uh, and so now we get down to 15 emails. They find that two of them were were put out to the public, so donezo. Another two uh, of those were shared with third parties, donezo. We're down to 11. Nine <laughs> of those, nine of them, are actually in anticipation of litigation and are discussions about current ongoing lawsuits and legal matters. So those don't get handed over. Another one is about the Pence throw out the thing, but the the judge determined, you know, throw out the electors, but the judge determined that that one is not in furtherance of a crime. Uh, Then we get to the one. (laughs) (laughs) And here's what's amazing, Andrew. The, The judge doesn't say, I just think there's crime fraud in this one email. The judge actually says, we still, we have to determine, the court has to determine if crimes were committed uh, by preponderance of the evidence, which is more likely than not. And, he, and the judge breaks it down in such an incredible way. And that's where I want to start. I love this. I will point out this is document number 4708, not attached to the order, not otherwise made available to the public at this point in time. But that's the one that we're looking for that is, as I alluded to in the intro to the show, it's why this is smoking gun day. This is a smoking gun document. And here's how the court describes it. Okay. Says after, after going through everything that you've just described, uh, which is, which is correct. And we're going to talk a little bit about the, the, the 10 of the 11 uh, where the court erred on the side of protecting attorney client privilege. And we're going to talk about the significance of the fact that uh, the court decided that uh, it was going to, 
delve into the substance of of the crime fraud exception. A- after all of that, the the one document that's left uh, is this document four seven zero eight, and it is described as following: the eleventh document. This is page forty one. Is a chain forwarding to Doctor Eastman a draft memo written for President Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani. Now, that's an interesting sentence because until now, John Eastman has been the sole author of all of these memoranda. Who who else wrote this for Rudy Giuliani? Was it Cleta Mitchell? Was it Sidney Powell? We don't know, but we will know. <laughs> and then that footnote 274 says, yeah, that th- this is document 4708. That's how we know that that's the smoking gun. The memo recommended that Vice President Pence reject electors from contested states on January 6th. This may have been the first time members of President Trump's team transformed a legal interpretation of the Electoral Count Act into a day-by-day plan of action. The draft memo pushed a strategy that knowingly violated the Electoral Count Act, knowingly violated the law. And Dr. Eastman's later memos closely track its analysis and proposal. The memo is both intimately related to and clearly advanced the plan to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021. So that's the big document that the court is all but, and again, again, Probably eluding most of the mainstream media, but, you know, you and I, you could not have put, you know, bright blue and red flashers on this to make it any more clear that uh, that this is what we're talking about. So um, with that in mind, that's the document. If the document is public because it is uh, subject to the crime fraud exception to attorney client privilege, why don't we talk about what the court found <laughs> with respect to. More, it, it, and this is directly summarizing the court's filing. This is why this is such a big deal. It is more likely than not that both President Trump, former President Trump, and Dr. John Eastman committed crimes. What are those crimes? We've talked to you about this ever since this uh, came out. Uh, and, and, and again, uh, Allison, the, the judge sat on this for 20 days, which is a long time, but it's a 44-page ruling. So, you know, that, that mm-hmm. gives you some indication of... Uh, you know, his his work output. Uh, those potential crimes are, are two federal crimes. President Trump attempted to obstruct Congress's proceeding to count the electoral votes on January 6th in violation of 18 U.S.C. 1512 C2. We've talked about that. And Trump, Eastman and others not named in this order entered into a conspiracy to defraud the United States by interfering with the election certification process in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 371. And the court determined civil standard more likely than not. So it's not this is not the same as a criminal conviction, but it is higher than the standard a grand jury needs to issue an indictment. Okay, (laughs) 50.1 percent that Trump committed crimes, 50.1 percent at least that Eastman committed crimes. So how does it parse out those crimes? And, and, And I will tell you as we walk through this, I love the fact. That this entire section, if you want to read along with us, it begins at page 31 of the of the order. This entire section does not discuss and is not contingent upon that 4708 smoking gun document memo or any of the other documents that were reviewed no. and released. Yeah, yeah, no, it says it says, hey, first of all, we're going to determine if crimes were committed. 
then we're going to apply the crime fraud exception to these remaining 11 documents to see if any of it, if any of it applies, if, they, if they, these were in furtherance of the crime I'm about to talk about, the crimes, plural, I'm and, about to talk about. And, and so when we talk about, here's the significance of that, right? We talk about the belt and suspenders approach, right? Like multiply defending the result that you've reached. It is very, very typical in crime fraud exception cases to rely upon the reviewed materials themselves as the evidence, right? Like, so, you know, in other words, if the evidence is uh, I, you send me, I am your lawyer, Allison, you send me uh, an email that says, hey, I want your help in committing X crime. There may be no external evidence other than that email itself that you and I were colluding on a crime. It is not improper to use the reviewed materials themselves as the basis for determining that the crime fraud exception applies. But here the court says, I don't have to do that. The materials that we have in the public domain right now support that conclusion. And, and what this is going to do, we're going to talk about, I know everybody wants to know, all right, you know, one judge, but like, is Trump going to overturn this on appeal? Is Clarence Thomas going to get suddenly healthy and go back to the bench? And it, it makes it harder for any court higher up the line, including an activist right wing nut job Supreme Court that we have uh, to, to, to issue any kind of relief here. And I'm going to talk about that process. But, but, but I want to tell you, my judgment is that that help is not coming Mm-mm. and we're going to we're going to get there. So. Yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about um, number one here: obstructing an official mm-hmm. proceeding. This is fifteen twelve C two. You've heard me talk about it a zillion times. As soon as Liz Cheney started using that specific language, and Rachel Maddow was like, "Oh, it's eighteen U.S. Code fifteen oh five. and I'm like, "No, no, no, Rachel, no, 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 no. It's fifteen twelve C two. And here we have uh, the court says the select committee alleges Trump violated this law which criminalizes obstructing an official proceeding, it requires three elements. The person obstructed, influenced, or impeded, or attempted to obstruct, influence, or impede. Number two, the official proceed, an official proceeding of the United States. And number three, did so corruptly. So, and, and what's great here is the court, this is, just reminds me of the Mueller report and the obstruction charges in volume two. They break it down into its elements and they talk about the first element, attempts to obstruct. Yeah. And attempt to obstruct is entirely based on material, again, that is available in the public domain. So on the morning of January 6th, President Trump made several last minute, quote, revised appeals to the vice president to pressure him into carrying out the plan. And it quotes at 1 a.m. Trump tweeting out if Vice President Mike Pence comes through for us, we will win the presidency. Mike can send it back. At 8.17 a.m., all Mike Pence has to do is send them back to the states and we win. Do it, Mike. This is a time for extreme courage. You know, we could go down. And they, they talk about the speech at the ellipse. And, uh, and Trump says, uh, Mike Pence, I hope you're going to stand up for the good of our Constitution. And if you're not, I'm going to be very disappointed in you. I will tell you that right now. And and again, you can say, oh, well, you know, what is what does disappointment mean? This led to folks carrying a gallows down to the actual Capitol and chanting, hang Mike Pence, right? So the message was received loud and clear. And the court says, together, these actions, more likely than not, constitute attempts to obstruct an official proceeding. Yeah, and it's not just the meetings that they had with Engels and or uh, uh, Greg Jacob and and not Engels, Greg Jacob and and everybody on the the 5th 
mm-hmm. but then all of his tweets on the 6th and including getting everybody to march down to the Capitol, right. tying in that yep. attack on the Capitol part to the conspiracy and concludes together these actions more than likely uh, or more likely than not constitute attempts to obstruct an official proceeding. Then, of course, the court says, by the way, this is an official proceeding. Ten other yeah, guys, <laughs> ten other guys have said that's so. a no-brainer. <laughs> and yeah, there was one jackoff who said it wasn't, but uh, with with no brain. Yeah, but <laughs> but we the court joins those ten well-reasoned opinions, <laughs> so that's great. And here's the part that I love: it is the corrupt intent part. And we talked about this, Andrew. Uh, Barb McQuaid put it in her 27-page mock-up of a of a charge for these, you know, for 371 and 1512 C2. All of the ways Trump knew he lost, and they're all in there. They're all in there. <laughs> it, it it is so the the as we have been saying from the beginning, right? The question is how do hypothetical charges against the former president proceed when? 1512 C2 requires corrupt intent, right? How how do we get around former President Trump using the Don Trump Jr. I'm too stupid to crime excuse? Yeah, well, and, my my lawyers were telling me that there yeah. that there was fraud, right? That's his and, defense. And, and, and absolutely. And you have seen John Eastman fall on his sword in public uh, to say, oh, no, we definitely we we told the president, you know, this was. Uh, the, the language that he used on uh, on Lawrence Lessig's podcast was, you know, we, we told the vice president and the president knew uh, that, uh, you know, that this was a permissible but strained reading of the Electoral Count Act. And he would be foolish to exercise that. But still, you know, did, you know how he is, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, you know. And and as it turns out, that's just a bald faced lie. Right. <laughs> that was absolutely not uh, from everything that we can tell, not what Eastman said behind the scenes to Greg Jacob. And again, you know, thank you, <laughs> Greg Jacob, unlikely hero here. I know, I know, <laughs> right? Yeah. And and he testified to all of it. And yeah. and the judge says the select committee points to numerous executive branch officials who publicly stated and privately told Trump that there's no evidence of fraud. You lost, bro. Uh, The judge says, quote, by early January, more than 60 courts dismissed (laughs) cases alleging fraud due to lack of standing or a lack of evidence, uh, noting that they made strained legal arguments without merit and speculative accusations and that there's no evidence to support accusations of voter fraud. Uh, Trump's repeated pleas for Secretary of State Ravensburger (laughs) to clearly demonstrate this (laughs) this justification was not to investigate fraud, but to win the election. Quote, so what are we going to do here, folks? I only need 11,000 votes, fellas. 11,000 votes. Give me a break. Taken together, the judge says this evidence demonstrates Trump likely knew the electoral count plan had no factual justification. (laughs) That's so good. Uh, It it really is. And, And part of the key here. Uh, and and as we sort of put this all together, I, I will tell you that uh, I think uh, the DOJ needs to indict John Eastman yesterday. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it, 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 it you, you cannot move quickly enough. And I know that we have uh, folks in media. We have listeners who are at the DOJ that this needs to be a question for the attorney general uh, now and and until John Eastman is indicted. Um, I, I believe uh based on his prior behavior that Eastman will flip on Trump, uh, that this is the joy. And a lot of people are sitting there, you know, when, when, when we shared this out, I mean, I, I, I saw replies to you replies to me, you know, with the, 
uh, John Oliver, you know, pushing the we got him banner. And I, I get it. Right. It, it, it sounds like we've had a lot of like, well, now we have ironclad proof. And, and if your view is, hey, uh, nothing's happened so far. Agree with that. The previous things that happened happened while Trump was president. And while he had a corrupt attorney general who could run interference, who could uh, lie about the Mueller report, who could work with a corrupt Congress, those things aren't the case right now. And so if you're sitting there thinking, well, you know, we've been down this result before, I would encourage you to view this in the optimistic lens, right? We've been down this this road before. It shows you that our institutions are willing to try to hold uh, Trump accountable. And mm-hmm. he's no longer in a position to to exercise, you know, the kind of... Uh, corrupt influence that that he did during two impeachments and over the Mueller report. Yeah, and 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 this first paragraph on page thirty six kind of <laughs> lays it out beautifully. It says Dr. Eastman argues that the plan was legally justified because it was quote grounded on a good faith interpretation of the Constitution. The judge says, but ignorance of the law is no excuse, and believing the Electoral Count Act was unconstitutional doesn't give you the right to violate it. Disagreeing with the law entitled Trump to seek remedy in court, not to disrupt a constitutionally mandated process. And President Trump knows how to pursue election claims in court after filing and losing more than 60 (laughs) times. So this plan was a last ditch attempt to secure the presidency by any means. Wow. That. That, that is huge. And, and let me break down. I love, I love that. He knows how to file shit in court. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's filed 60 losing lawsuits already. And it's, it's really good. And, and, and in particular, as uh, reading this as a lawyer, you see two things coming out as a result that I, I, I just want to make sure that we're emphasizing. The first is the behind the scenes evidence that John Eastman knew that his arguments for the violating the Electoral Count Act were pretextual, right? Eastman went and did a little publicity tour, including going on, you know, my buddy Lawrence Lessig's podcast, including a, a, a puff piece. That's as kind as I can put it by the National Review, uh, in which he said, well, you know, I believe that this was a legitimate interpretation of the Electoral Count Act. No, you didn't, John Eastman. And the evidence proves that. So that's the first half. Documentary evidence. Documentary evidence of him saying, this will lose nine nothing. This will lose nine nothing (laughs) in the Supreme Court. There's zero votes for it, right? Uh, and, and, And corroborating emails and testimony from very, very credible witnesses like Greg Jacob, Mike Pence's chief chief, chief counsel. So that Judge uh, Ledig guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Judge Ludig. Uh, Ludig, who, sorry. Yeah. Um, no, no, no. Who again? You want to talk about unlikely heroes? Uh, somebody who went to the White House and said, "Guys, I am as on your side as you can get. This argument is nonsense. Don't make it." Mm-hmm. Right. So and Pence it, himself. Pence yep. his motherfucking self, changing the language, <laughs> saying, we got to anticipate this. I'm not going to do it. I talked to my buddy, Potato Dan Quayle, and he says no, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it is. It, it, that chips away at half of Trump's defense, right? Which is, look, I had lawyers tell me in good faith that I won the election and that this was perfectly reasonable. No, you didn't. The second. No, you did not. You 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 knew. And the lawyers can. Conceded to you, and, and we think that these emails will show uh, that you were told this is a this is a last ditch. It violates the law. Uh, it's not a good faith interpretation of the Electoral Count Act. The second thing that I love about this that I think closes up the the other avenue of defense is 
by exposing the difference between a good faith basis for overturning a law, which is what a lawyer needs to demonstrate to avoid Rule 11 sanctions, right? So give you the world's best example of that, right? That is uh, the attorneys who filed suit, including Thurgood Marshall, in what became Brown versus Board of Education, right? They knew the law said uh, that schools, that public schools were segregated by race. That had been affirmed at the Supreme Court 50 plus years ago. And what they were doing was saying, yeah, we we agree that the law is presently X, but we want to bring a lawsuit to say that the law should change. And we have a good faith basis for doing that. You want to protect lawyers being able to do that. That's not the same as saying you can break the law because your lawyer thinks even even if you do. Right. So if, uh, you know, you'd have had a situation where uh, students were violating the law prior to Brown versus Board of Education, it wouldn't be a get out of jail free card, literally in that case, to say, by the way, our lawyer thinks that eventually the Supreme Court is going to overturn Plessy versus Ferguson until they do. You're breaking the law. That's part of what makes it civil disobedience, right? <laughs> like yeah, yeah. You're breaking that law. So every possible and, and, and I, I, I want to dwell on that because. Eastman has deliberately obfuscated the fact that the standard for him as a lawyer to file a, a a lawsuit is a much different bar than the standard for counseling your client how to act. You must, as a lawyer, counsel your client to obey the law. You can say, I think the law is unjust. I think we're going to, here's how we're going to file a lawsuit. We're going to get this and we're going to win. That's not what John Eastman did. John Eastman said, I want Mike Pence to act without going to the court. This is the key thing here. And, and so. <laughs> and, this really... and I know it's a little light treason, <laughs> but just a little bit more, just a little, yeah. just a delay. <laughs> I mean, you already violated the thing by going over debate for two hours and you didn't call the vote. So let's just do it one more time. Let's just break yep. the law one more time. I'm your lawyer. I say it's okay. Yeah, no, you can't do that, bro. So, so bottom line, and I, I know you wanted to read this paragraph, but I, I, I got to steal it do from it. you. Let, Go ahead. Th- this is, this is on, uh, the, uh, uh, on the obstruction charge, the, the, the 18 USC 1512 C2, the court concludes the illegality of the plan was obvious. Our nation was founded on the peaceful transition of power, epitomized by George Washington laying down his sword to make way for Democratic elections. Ignoring this history, Trump vigorously campaigned for the vice president to single-handedly determine the results of the 2020 election. As Vice President Pence stated, no vice president in American history has ever asserted such authority. Every American, and certainly the president of the United States, knows that in a democracy, leaders are elected, not installed. With a plan this bold, quoting from Eastman's emails, Trump knowingly tried to subvert this fundamental principle. Based on the evidence, the court finds it more likely than not that President Trump corruptly attempted to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021. And that's important that they just say Trump, right? Because my understanding of crime fraud exception is the furtherance of a crime can be committed by either party in the communication. Is that right? Uh, It's actually more restrictive than that. It is the the crime has to be committed by the person ostensibly seeking legal advice. Uh Right. It's by the client. So in order to demonstrate that the crime fraud exception applies here, you have to have the client 
corruptly asking the lawyer to help you further a crime. And 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 think about that, right? If the reverse were the case, right? If I, uh, let's say I lost my goddamn mind and I hired Sidney Powell to uh, represent me for something. And right? I was otherwise trapped under something heavy and couldn't stop you. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And I say, hey, uh, Sidney, I want you to do uh, whatever it takes to uh, to, you know, get these charges dismissed against me. And I mean that as um, whatever it takes from a legal perspective, I'll pay any amount of money, you know, make all the arguments. I don't care. Trash my name in public, but but make sure I don't go to jail. And Sidney Powell is like, I'm on it, boss, and starts criming the shit out of because that's what she does. Uh, that doesn't in, that doesn't vitiate my privilege. Mm. Right. Like I legitimately went to somebody who for not much longer, but someone who is a lawyer and asked for legitimate legal advice. And the fact that my lawyer is a criminal shouldn't get rid of my privilege. And, and you know, that I think that dovetails nicely with, you know, what, what you point out with respect to going through the threshold issues, which uh, <laughs> which Judge Carter does at great length in this opinion. Um, it, it This really does preserve the court. It's as favorable to lawyer. I'm a lawyer. It's as favorable to lawyers as you could possibly get on this issue. So, yeah, it's important that uh, with respect to uh, the obstructing an official proceeding that the court make a finding that the president of the United States more likely than not corruptly attempted to obstruct an official proceeding. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And that's probably what took 20 days was yeah. to make sure you got this right. All right. I want to go over uh, the other crime conspiracy to defraud the United States, but we need to take a quick break. So uh, everybody mm -hmm. stick around. We'll be right back with conspiracy to defraud the United States. <laughs> Stay with us. Hello, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Together, we host the Spy Talk podcast. Every week, we delve into the worlds of intelligence, foreign policy, military operations, and the intersection of all three in national security issues. Spycraft, cybersecurity, violent extremism, whether at home or abroad, technology's impact on intelligence gathering. We cover it all and much more. We interview former spooks, military officers, government officials, journalists, and national security researchers, leveraging our backgrounds in military intelligence and homeland security, along with our decades of experience as journalists and news organizations like Newsweek, The Washington Post, and CNN. So join us every Thursday for a new episode of Spy Talk, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, everybody, welcome back. We are on part two of the crime fraud exception on page 36 in this ruling, conspiracy to defraud the United States. And and real quick, I'll tell you that of the handful of emails that were left, the, the other part of crime fraud exception, the fraud part where the committee said common law fraud was committed, you know, when they spread the big lie, the judge yeah. found that none of these emails have anything to do with election fraud. So that filter doesn't catch any of these emails. Yep. That's an excellent um, correction. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So I just want to get the fraud part out of the way, but let's go back to the crime part. Um, <laughs> the select committee alleges Trump and Eastman and others and others conspired to defraud the United States by disrupting electoral count in violation of 18 U.S. Code 371. That crime requires, one, that at least two people entered into an agreement to obstruct the lawful function of the government, and two, by deceitful or dishonest means, and three, that a member of the conspiracy... One member, a member of the conspiracy engaged in at least one overt act in furtherance of the agreement. 
Yep. And th- those are the traditional standards for proving any conspiracy, right? So it's not idiosyncratic to conspiracy to defraud the United States. That's that's what it means. Uh, that would be the same as, you know, conspiracy to knock over a 7-Eleven, right? You'd have to prove the exact same things. Yeah. Or if I, you want to elevate the, the obstruction of an official proceeding to conspiracy to an obstruct an official proceeding, those three yep. things apply with the whole official proceeding, the proceeding thing subsumed in it, 1512C2 subsumed in it. Yep. Uh, also, uh, to your, your point <laughs> in the fact that this indicates uh, and others, 17 of the documents that were reviewed and declared non-privileged were documents prepared for dissemination to members of Congress, right? We know and suspect uh, that uh, that that my good old buddy uh, Ted Cruz uh, and certainly Josh Hawley were in on this. Yeah, um, it says seven specific senators, actually. Uh huh. We do not know who those other five are, and boy, am I interested in finding out. And and the documents that pertain to uh, John Eastman in direct communication with members of Congress uh, are. Go into the one six committee. Mm-hmm. So as are his uh, communications with state legislators and officials mm-hmm. to overturn the elections. Um, so, yeah, it'll be we'll, we will learn about those. We will indeed. So um, proving up a conspiracy. First, <laughs> you have to show the agreement to obstruct an, a lawful government function. And uh, obviously, uh, first, it's a lawful government function when Congress met on one six to uh, count the electoral votes. Um, And then the court says an agreement between co-conspirators need not be expressed and can be inferred from conspirators conduct. Longstanding principle of law. There is strong circumstantial evidence to show that there was likely an agreement between President Trump and Dr. Eastman to enact the plan articulated in Dr. Eastman's memo. In other words, it's not war gaming. This is not, well, you know, you could, but no agreement to enact the plan. In the days leading up to January 6th, Dr. Eastman and President Trump had two meetings with high-ranking officials to advance the plan. On January 4th, President Trump and Dr. Eastman hosted a meeting in the Oval Office to persuade Vice President Pence to carry out the plan. The next day, Trump sent Eastman to continue discussions with the Vice President's staff, in which Vice President Pence's counsel perceived Dr. Eastman as the president's representative, leading small meetings in the heart of the White House implies an agreement between the president and Eastman and a shared goal of advancing the electoral count plan. The strength of this agreement was evident from president Trump's praise for Eastman and his plan in his January 6th speech on the ellipse. John is one of the most brilliant lawyers in the country. Not true. He's a big old racist. Uh, And he looked at this and said, what an absolute disgrace that this could be happening to our constitution. Again, I want to point out that, All of these uh, are backed up by evidence that is in the public domain that is available thanks to what the one six committee has introduced in evidence from Greg Jacobs testimony primarily. So, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then they say based on those repeated meetings deep in the White House and statements, the statements Trump made at the ellipse and whatnot, Mm -hmm. the evidence shows an agreement to enact the electoral count plan likely existed between the President Trump and Dr. Eastman. Then uh, deceitful and dishonest means. I love this one. Uh, obstructing obstruction of a lawful <laughs> government function violates 371 when it's carried out by deceit, craft, or trickery, or at least by means that are dishonest. I like the trickery part. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> While acting on a good faith misunderstanding of the law is not dishonest. Again, let me repeat that. If you're acting on a good faith misunderstanding of the law, that's not dishonest. Merely disagreeing with the law 
does not constitute a good faith misunderstanding, though, because all persons have a duty to obey the law, whether or not they agree with it. And that's what you were talking about before. Yep. And and again, uh, this is boxing out the I'm too stupid to crime or alternatively. Right. I got good faith advice from my lawyers that this was, you know, a reasonable, if far fetched interpretation of the law. No, you didn't. And here we go back to we, we, we paused lightly on Fourth Circuit Judge Michael Ludig. I, I want to tell our listeners who that is, if, if the name doesn't immediately kind of ring a bell. Ted Cruz clerked for Michael Ludig when running for president. Ted Cruz named Judge Ludig as the person he would appoint to the Supreme Court. Right. So this is not just. Oh, well, you know, here's one conservative judge talking about another. This is somebody who the co-conspirators here, which in, I, I, I cannot believe do not involve Ted Cruz, uh, given that he repeated Eastman's talking points from the floor of the Senate on January 6th. Um, the people involved have signaled this person as their icon of uh, understanding the law. So the evidence demonstrates that Eastman knew the plan was unlawful, likely knew that the plan was unlawful. Eastman heard from numerous mentors and like-minded colleagues that his plan had no basis in history or precedent. Fourth Circuit Judge Ludig, for whom Dr. Eastman clerked, Eastman as well, clerk for Ludig, publicly stated that the plan's analysis was incorrect at every turn. Vice President Pence's legal counsel, Greg Jacob, spent hours refuting each part of the plan to Dr. Eastman, including noting that there had never been a departure from the Electoral Count Act and not a single one of the framers would agree with his position. And then here's the crucial part. Dr. Eastman himself <laughs> repeatedly recognized that his plan had no legal support in his discussion with the vice president's counsel. Dr. Eastman acknowledged the 100 percent consistent historical practice since the time of the founding that the vice president did not have the authority to act as the memo proposed. More importantly, Dr. Eastman admitted more than once that his proposal violated several provisions of statutory law, including your favorite part in mind, the previous smoking gun document. Exhibit N, including explicitly characterizing the plan as, quote, one more relatively minor violation of the Electoral Count Act, end of quote. That's that's bad when you put that in writing as a lawyer. Yeah. And that's not one of the emails, by the way, that's being handed over. That's not this one that we're talking about, just so you know. Yeah, no, this is we we broke this down on OA. You broke this down on your So This was exhibit N to the opposition. This was an email from Eastman to Greg Jacob mm -hmm. sent after the Capitol had been breached at, uh, at 1145 p.m. Eastern time. Right. So as yeah, and they my about concern to was it would be the same email. Right. Yeah, it's not. No, no, no. Yeah, so so the basis for this determination is something that we have and have publicly uh, broken down the, the the additional email is one that we have not seen. Nope. So, yep. It's uh, a whole brand new crimey email. <laughs> indeed it is. So look, we could go on. Uh, this section runs on for another page and a half uh, and it just piles on Eastman that look, you knew uh, that the theory that Mike Pence could unilaterally act here was not well founded, not founded at all in the law. You were challenged uh, on numerous occasions and you conceded over and over again, uh, including characterizing it yourself as a violation of the law. And when you do that, you can't say I'm rendering good faith advice to my client. 
No. So yeah, and you know what's cool is when they go into that third thing you have to do overt acts and furtherance of the conspiracy. It's almost word for word what Barb McQuaid wrote out. Uh, it it is, indeed. and what you and I had <laughs> talked about, and they say, "Hey, there's not just one overt act here, you guys. There's a bunch uh, in their uh, shared plan." And and it he, he talks about how detailed in length above Trump strong arming Pence into following the plan, including the meeting and calling the vice president and berating him in his speech to thousands outside the Capitol. That's an overt act. Dr. Eastman joined for one of those meetings, spent hours attempting to convince the vice president's counsel to support the plan, gave his own speech at the ellipse, demanding that Pence stand up and enact his plan. That's Those both are both overt acts. So there, there's just four right there, and there's probably more. But the court says, based on this evidence, it's more likely than not that Trump and Eastman dishonestly conspired to obstruct the joint session of Congress. Yeah, and... and- just a little bit on overt acts. This is not a high threshold, and this is the kind of thing on which grand juries indict, prosecutors prosecute, and regular pettit juries convict all the time, right? So imagine that you have the classic scenario where uh, the government is wiretapping uh, suspects that it thinks are about to engage in criminal activity. Those suspects are you and I, Allison. Mm. Again, we go back to our plan to knock off the nearby 7-Eleven. I say to you, all right, so we're we're good. Uh, on March 31, we're going to go knock off the 7-Eleven, right? Yep. Uh, you get the weapons. Uh, I'll bring the vehicle. And uh, then we'll go, uh, you know, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to march in. I've cased the place. And, you know, by 10 o'clock at night, there's no security bo- When you go buy the gun the next day, not even March 31, uh, that's when government can come in and arrest both of us, charge us with a conspiracy to commit armed robbery. You buying the gun was one overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. You don't have to succeed. You don't have to do the end of the chain. You have to begin the beginning of the chain. And if you didn't, right, we would never be able to preemptively stop crimes in this country. Right? Like, <laughs> right. We'd have to wait until somebody who knocked <laughs> yeah. off a 7-Eleven. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go we back. We have to uh, wait for back. the two Utes to go into the sack of suds and right. shoot the clerk. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we, exactly. we don't want to have to do uh, that. So, yeah. so uh, that that's about. So, okay. Well, now, 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 <laughs> Andrew, that we have that whole. Here's the crimes, and 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 more likely than not, they committed them. Now, we're going to look at the remaining 11 documents to see if they were in furtherance of all the shit I just said. Is that right? Is that the, the way that they've done this? That is exactly right. right. So we're at, uh, of, of the 111 documents, uh, exactly 100 have already been released, right? And, and, and let's be honest. I mean, we could go through these one by one. We don't really have to. Much of the ones that are being released are being released because of overly broad claims of privilege in the first place, right? They include blank emails, emails with just a signature line, emails that uh, append a state court decision, right? And we saw evidence of uh, John Eastman sort of, um, you know, seizing on anything uh, and forwarding it around and going, see, look, the state legislators are going to be on board with our plan. Um, All of those are going to be produced, but all of those are not going to be all that interesting, (laughs) No, uh, the be, ones that yeah. are to Congress are going to be interesting. The one to the state legislatures are going to be interesting. But it's these 11 that are left, 10 of which we're, we're never going to see. Um, no, and I don't know about that. But but uh, 
So after this, so far, so yeah. far, uh, we might so, see them from other people who received them. That's right. Yeah. So here's here's how the court breaks those down. Okay, and this begins on page forty one. Of those eleven documents, nine were emails or attachments discussing active lawsuits in state and federal courts. So we know what these documents are, right? This is reporting in on the uh, less than stellar, that is 0 for 60 result that the Kraken lawsuits were maintaining. Are these super interesting documents? You bet your ass. These are super interesting documents for us to see uh, because they likely show, right? That, remember that the plan to have Vice President Pence unilaterally declare the electoral votes invalid from certain states uh, or otherwise, you know, say, oh, you need more time and whatever other nonsense that uh, Eastman wanted to do. That was the last ditch plan. So I believe that these nine emails that uh, are being discussed here are probably increasingly panicky emails from <laughs> Eastman to, to to Trump going, all right, well, uh, turns out that the thing about, you know, where we had Spider say that uh, <laughs> the electoral votes were stolen by Hugo Chavez and shipped overseas to Europe to be transformed into Biden votes. And, you know, Mike Lindell is like, I, it, it turns out that didn't go so great. Right? Um, it, it, I'd love to see those emails. Or but, yeah, we could have a, we could hold a hearing in the Arizona quote unquote state legislature holiday in with, uh, you know, some of our aff affidavit signers, you know, whatever, you know, just the, those uh, yeah. kinds of things, although that could be a congressional one, that could be another email, I don't know. But like you said, Eastman's not the only holder of these emails. Other people have them. That is exactly right. So the court says they include drafting filings, conferring about oral arguments, planning future litigation strategy. While these suits may, might have dealt with claims of election fraud, pursuing legal recourse itself did not advance any crimes. That's true. That goes back to the distinction that I made. And I think that this is really critical for us to hold the line on, right? To say, yeah, it, 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 we're not saying arrest Donald Trump, arrest John Eastman, even for bringing the most frivolous, ridiculous lawsuits that they did. You want to, you want to do that just for right now, right? Uh, it, where there was no basis, you know, we will sanction your lawyers, uh, but that's probably not a crime. The contents of the emails are cabined to those narrow litigation purposes. As such, these nine emails were not in furtherance of any of the offenses alleged by the select committee, right? They they did not directly lead to the 1-6 insurrection, so the crime fraud exception does not apply. I want to see those emails, but yeah. Yeah, and the 10th document, too. I And, <laughs> and I, I like this because they say, ah, you know what, this, this doesn't fall under crime fraud exception, but let me tell you what's in it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that that was like, huh, can you do that? Um, the yeah, you can't. So, so yeah, let me, let me go really, and I know you want to talk about it, but what is revealed here by Judge Carter is no more than what you would write on an accurate privilege law ah, to withhold. What he should so, have written on the privilege yes, log. Yes, exactly. So go ahead. Go so ahead. the 10th document sent at 4.03 Mountain Time, right? Six, uh, <laughs> which I think is six o'clock, seven o'clock, something. It, six o'clock, yeah. Six o'clock. On January 6th, during the resumption of the joint session, so the, they got the thing under control, they've come back in, uh, the email responded to a request to participate in Dr. Eastman's work on behalf of President Trump. 
uh, again, let me read that again because it's weird. The email responded to a request to participate in Dr. Eastman's work on behalf of President Trump. While the email discusses Vice President Pence's refusal to reject or delay the electoral count, the email is not itself in furtherance of the plan and thus does not fall within crime fraud. So what does this email say? So my guess is that this email, so this is document 5424. My guess is that this email is an email from Greg Jacob to Donald Trump at six o'clock uh, saying, yeah, look, the the Capitol is under siege uh, and, you know, we're not going to join in on this uh, scheme anymore. We're not going to listen to any of this nonsense. And, and we know that because we have later or to emails. Mark Meadows, maybe. Right. Yeah, it, it, it could be to it could be to a lot of folks. Yeah. Right. Um, but I I suspect given the fact that the court ultimately declines to produce this doc to require that this document be produced, uh, that this is a document that the one six committee likely already has in its possession. And that's just based on timing, right? That's based on timing and subject matter request to participate in the, uh, in the plan, right? The, the plan to steal the election sent in the middle of the, the evening, right? Six o'clock, uh, it, that is right as the insurrectionists are being dispersed uh, and an, about an hour and a half to two hours uh, before Congress would be the joint session of Congress would be reconvened. So this is a time presumably in which uh, Eastman is um, engaged in kind of a desperate uh, attempt to say, you know, OK, now that we've already done some light criming, like, uh, you know, let's. Let's continue this and just, you know, put everything off now. You know, the Electoral Count Act is not so sacrosanct as you yeah, thought. It could be that email. It, 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 and, and, and I think what it is, is uh, if you look at the footnote 272, it says the court previously concluded that the earlier email, right, the one to which this responds, was not prepared in anticipation of litigation. That's document 5423. So. The, the, the email requesting, right, Dr. Eastman saying, uh, hey, you know, why don't you do some more crime ah, is, is already required to be produced. Going yeah. over. But but whoever responded to it is not. That's exactly right. <laughs> oh, that's good. That brings us to the one. <laughs> there can be only one. This is like the quickening of the Eastman emails, right? This is, yep. <laughs> this yep. is the Highlander. Uh, this is, Yeah. <laughs> Um, the 11th document, and you, we've already gone over this, but I'm going to do it again. Um, it's a chain forwarding to Dr. Eastman, and that's a draft memo written for Rudy Giuliani. And we don't know who wrote it, but the judge says the memo recommends Pence reject the electors from contested states on January 6th. And again, like you said, this might be the first time members of Trump's team transformed a legal interpretation of the Electoral Count Act, the bullshit interpretation, into a plan of action, a day-by-day -day plan of action. And we don't have a date on this email. We, we do not, but I infer that this was written in November or December. Mm -hmm. right? Same. And, and will we'll help bring the conspiracy, right? All of these documents were produced between January 4th and January 7th, right? That was the urgent time period for review. Remember that there are almost 20,000 emails in both Eastman's and Chapman University's possession that 
are also the subject of this subpoena will be governed by the standards at issue in this order. And as you move backwards to November or December was the first time when folks started thinking about how do we completely subvert the democratic process, right? How do we get to knowing, and, and again, probably in December, because it's probably uh, around or after when uh, the safe harbor provision uh, in the Electoral Count Act, mm-hmm. right, where states have submitted their certified slates of electors. Uh, and, uh, you know, this probably... I don't want to say probably this could include the uh, the plans to have, you know, prominent Republicans meet in the Denny's parking lot and issue their absolutely fake electoral uh, uh, certifications, alternative certifications Mm -hmm. for which those people are already uh, some are have been indicted and and the rest are under investigation. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, or the Green Bay sweep or the Jeffrey Clark plan or I mean. Could be a lot of things. Yeah, could be. Um, so now uh, let's pivot to and and I I, I want to cover this in uh, sufficient depth that we are clear. I, again, I, I I know a lot of you feel like uh, uh, Charlie Brown running at the football. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we all do. There are reasons to be skeptical. Um, I, here's why uh, this document is not going to be you know, immediately subject to appeal and overturned. And, you know, the Supreme Court is going to come back and yeah, say. So could, yeah, that's the question is now that the court has ordered these 101 emails to be handed over. How when when does the committee get them and, and what steps can they take? What steps can Trump and Eastman or Eastman take to delay them being handed over? Because that's yep. what's going to they're going to try everything that they can. Of, of, of course, they're going to try that. So. It's important to note, right, that this is not just, uh, you know, a, an opinion, right? This is an order, right? And it is specifically an order uh, that contains, and the, the legal effect of this is, uh, is is called a mandate, right? It is issued. It says, uh, it with this limited mandate, the court finds the following 10 documents privileged, reads those off. That includes... 5424, which is our juicy document, but but still privileged. The court orders Dr. Eastman to disclose the other 101 documents to the House Select Committee. No date on that. Uh, no, you know, <laughs> comply within X time frame. Remember uh, that we are incredibly fortunate here in that Eastman is not the only one in possession of these documents. No, and Chapman so, <laughs> has them. Yeah, Chapman has them. So now the question is, uh, is John Eastman, you know, filing his appeal right now? And the answer to that is no. What John Eastman is likely drafting right now and working uh, with his lawyers while uh, I- engaged in the flop sweats uh, is a motion for leave to file an interlocutory appeal. OK, because this his remember, this is John Eastman is the plaintiff in this case. Right. He filed a four count complaint. Uh, seeking to prevent Chapman University from turning over any documents or complying with the subpoena. And that complaint, uh, like I said, uh, has four causes of action. Number one uh, was that it, the subpoena is uh, ultra virus, is beyond the power of the 1 6 committee to issue. Uh, number three was that it violates uh, John Eastman's First Amendment rights of association. 
And number four, and this is the weirdest one, uh, that it violates his Fourth Amendment rights to privacy. Um, count two was that all the emails were privileged, right? So arguably, this is partial relief on the motion to quash on count two of a four count complaint. Well, when you get partial summary judgment or a partial motion to dismiss, ordinarily, you do not have the right to turn around and immediately appeal that decision. Right. That's not you only appeal from a final decision of a court. Oh, so you got to wait not, for those other three counts. Yeah. You got to you got to wait for that to, to be completed. If you don't, if you want to, if you want leave to file an appeal while the rest of the case is still going, that is where you move for an interlocutory appeal. Right. While speaking is is the the Latin derivative of that. And that is the idea that, hey, we get it. The lawsuit's going on. Uh, but, you know, this is probably a pretty crucial issue. So we want to pause that. Let us appeal up to the Ninth Circuit uh, while everything else goes on. Um, the judge is absolute. That is bound in the absolute discretion of the trial judge. And so uh, Judge Carter can go, no, this is <laughs> look, I'm not granting your motion for an interlocutory appeal. And at that point, what you are left with is going to the Ninth Circuit with some motion to stay. Emergency or stay. Yeah. Or for a writ of mandamus or some other kind of exceptional relief that will move incredibly quickly. Right. Because right now, Chapman University, right. Uh, uh, Eastman is not going to comply with the order. Chapman University is like. I'll comply with the order. Yeah. Uh, they have made yeah. that <laughs> abundantly clear from the outset. And so the question is, right, um, how, how do you stop them in time if you're, uh, you know, the evil uh, conspirators here? And uh, you have to move quickly. So they can't do the Mazars thing, you know, what Trump did in Mazars and kind of hope to run out the clock because there's an alternative uh, source with the documents here. Um, and uh, And the relief that you want is going to be incredibly uh, narrow and incredibly difficult to justify for the reasons that we've described in going through here, right? There is no more prejudice that will happen from turning these documents over to the one six committee uh, because uh, they're not going to be released to the public immediately. Um, and the basis for finding the crime fraud exception was based 100% on documents public. and testimony that's already in the public. public so yeah. I, I, I've been wrong, right? I, yeah. <laughs> I've been very wrong uh, about some some high profile things, uh, but I don't think I, I feel very confident that the Ninth Circuit is not going to grant extraordinary no. relief. Uh, Everyone's and, worried about SCOTUS. And, and based on right. Remember, uh, one six committee subpoenas have already gone to SCOTUS on two separate occasions. The only Supreme Court justice that has dissented is, of course, Clarence Thomas, whose mm. wife is one of the insurrectionists. Um, so uh, it, 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 I, I feel, I feel very good. Uh, and you know, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm not the one to usually pull the football away, right? I would tell you if I thought this could be jammed up in the courts forever. Um, yeah, and good and remember, these get these get handed over to the committee. The committee cannot arrest people; they cannot indict yep. people. This yep. is going to go over to the committee. The committee is going to have public hearings. We're going to probably see Greg Jacob talk. They'll make a presentation about this seven state conspiracy and they'll talk about Eastman. They'll talk about 371 and 1512 C2. And they'll just say, here's what happened. Here's what happened. Here's what was in that email that we've been talking about today that had the crime fraud exception. 
Uh, here's that thing. Who here's who wrote it for Rudy? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. This is all part of this, and et cetera, you know. And then they'll be like, and and scene, and then we will just hear about it. And then the committee can make criminal referrals to the Department of Justice. However, the Department of Justice does not have to wait for those criminal referrals to do anything about this. This is all in the public domain right now, now that we've seen it. Of course, I mean, these emails that are going over to the committee are not, but the, the DOJ could already have them under a 20, what is it, a 2703 order? Some, that kind of order where you can get shit off of phone records and, and email servers without telling the person that you're getting them uh, because you've got a warrant and, and reason to believe the evidence is there. Uh, so we shouldn't have to, and I've, I've posited that perhaps the Department of Justice to stay apolitical is waiting for a, an inspector general referral or a bipartisan congressional referral so that it can say, hey, I didn't take up this investigation on my own. Okay. I was presented with a referral and, and, and it's my duty to look at these referrals. And I thought, man, maybe he's doing that. And that could be what's taken so long. But we, you know, and honestly, we just don't know. But I don't want everyone to think that even if this goes up to the Ninth Circuit and SCOTUS won't hear it and it goes to the committee, that doesn't mean people are going to be indicted. The committee does not indict people. I think everyone who's listened to this show knows that. Yeah, that's a that's an incredibly important clarification. It's it's really good. But look, like the significance here to me, and I have I have asked uh, my I put the question out to my prosecutor friends uh, whether you could take this document and put it before a grand jury and just say, I want you to read this. And that, right, because you have a court has determined as a matter of law on the basis of the existing evidence that is public uh, that uh, not just there's probable cause to believe that John Eastman and Donald Trump have broken the law, but that there is, in fact, way more than probable cause yeah. <laughs> that it is more likely than not. And again, if and you're like you said, about that's these, a higher standard than a grand jury needs to indict. Yep. If you think about these from sort of a numerical standpoint, I was always taught this, that like probable cause is somewhere in the like 15 to 25 percent range. That's all you need. You could believe that somebody probably didn't do it. Uh, but but as a grand jury say, but there's there's probable cause to think that that they might. And let's not let's let the process begin and accumulate more evidence. Right? Yeah. Like and, and Department of Justice can also say, as I said, you know, hey, I want to keep a political arm's length by waiting for an IG or waiting yep. for Congress. A great argument for Merrick Garland would be, hey, a court said that there was enough evidence to indict. A court yep. said that. So it wasn't me. It was, it, Don't look at me. I'm just the attorney general. <laughs> a court said this. And a court is a nonpartisan entity as well. Right? Am I right? Yep. Yep. Nope. That is that is all exactly correct. Unless you're Clarence and, Thomas. Uh, thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so, look. Um, here's, here's what I want to say as, as the bottom line, we have a lot of journalists who listen to these shows. Um, we have a lot of folks who are active, who communicate with journalists. Um, now, now is the time for this to be part of the public conversation, right? If you're a journalist, you need to ask every time that it's appropriate. Hey, what's the stat? Is the DOJ going to act in response to, uh, this ruling from judge carter in the central district of california now that a court has determined that the president and john eastman have likely committed crimes where's the where's the consequence for those crimes yeah um, yeah now's the and, time to start right you know yeah that's right and so you know we have been 
we've tried to set the record straight on Merrick Garland, uh, both uh, both for for good and and for ill, right? And we have pointed out, uh, you know, that that uh, Merrick Garland has been uh, unafraid uh, to uh, to issue indictments for those who have defied the one six subpoenas. Um, so, you know, for those of you who think he's a secret Federalist Society shill, like that's that the, the evidence is otherwise. Well, he's batting right? 500, yeah. which is good yeah. if you're in the if you're in the baseball, you know, if you're in yeah, the major league pretty baseball. Good. But 500, um, I mean, because one and one, right? We've got Meadows yeah. and we've got Bannon and that's it. One he I, indicted, one he has not. It's been 105 days on Meadows. Yep. Yep. No, I it it, it is important uh, to, uh, you know, to keep his feet to the fire on that so you know we we i don't think either of us are um you know wearing rose-colored glasses uh when it comes to merrick garland but um but but yeah this is this is a real moment and if garland goes you know a, a month here without talking about and without us getting some indication that uh an indictment on uh on eastman is is pending then uh then i will i will join you guys in in saying that uh that Garland's got to go at that point, but I don't, I, I, I don't, you hear me. I'm optimistic for the first time in a long time, right? Like this is, this is, this is where if you, if I were operating on a blank slate, right. And you wanted to say, is this how the system is supposed to work? This is how the system is supposed to work, right? You have a congressional I wonder if this is how it happened in Watergate. Yeah. I remember it took years for everything. So yeah, that's, it, 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 that's, it's a good point. I, I, I don't, I, I don't want to cast any aspersions on anybody who's feeling down, right? Like I'm with you yeah. I'm there. We want to, the, the whole point of this podcast is to hold the former guy accountable. Uh, but if you're looking for, you know, where does this fit? This feels like, you know, 2005, like <laughs> this, this feels like a pre Trump way of holding people in power accountable before the system got debased and abused. And, um, and I'm going to I'm I for one I'm going to be optimistic until uh until I've got a reason not to be. Yeah, and uh I'll I'll start calling for this for this indictment. We need to start and and by the way, you can scream on Twitter. But the <laughs> best way to <laughs> to to make your voice heard and do, yeah. By uh by the Department of Justice, they have a contact page at at justice.gov where you can contact the Department of Justice, write them a letter, write them an email, leave them a voicemail. And say, hey, a court determined that, uh, you know, beyond preponderance, more likely than not, which is enough to indict. So you should indict. You know, just leave my message. Yep. I guarantee you they listen to those. I used to work for the government. You have to, actually. You actually have to listen to those messages. You do not have to listen to or read Twitter. So uh, as a government entity. So you are, I think, much better off. Now, I mean, put your opinion on Twitter all day, but I'm saying more <laughs> constructive to to leave those voicemails and emails because they have to be read by the by the department. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well. Well, <laughs> this has been an episode, huh? Hooey. Justicey Monday. And, uh, and it's only Monday. Of course, you're listening to this on Wednesday. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what comes out between now and then. <laughs> Between, Indeed. between the time it was because we're like I, this morning we you know i were texting back and forth and we're like what are we going to talk about well we got <laughs> comings so, and goings we got a couple of cool judges that got uh appointed to superior court in california uh the 
the budget maybe and then i'm like i wish that fucking judge would finish with these 111 emails (laughs) (laughs) sometimes beware of what you wish for and then (laughs) ships at sea the emails you want have been reviewed dr gill please see here (laughs) so (laughs) there we are but uh wow just what an incredible filing what an amazing i mean it's just um top to bottom the order in which they go through those seven different filters end up with one email (laughs) and say yeah it was in furtherance of a crime more likely than not uh and oh and the other hundred you got to hand over to have a nice day and and Nineteen thousand plus more still in the pipeline. Of after the election, yeah, yeah. Holy moly! All right, yeah, and like you said, this is going to uh, set the tone for what the what the log is supposed to the privilege log is supposed to look like. Unless he wants to run into this uh, fun little well, we'll just tell everybody about it then. If you won't fucking cooperate, <laughs> uh, uh, this is you know again. If you're on if you're on team good guys, gotta feel pretty good today. Yeah, you do. All right. It's been great talking to you, Andrew. Uh, it's been great going over this filing with you. Thanks for answering my questions. And uh, we will see you next week on uh, on Clean Up on All 45. And we will make up, we'll do a makeup for all of the uh, <laughs> the new patrons and the comings and goings and stuff like that. We just- yeah, we we needed to get this out to you and we needed the time. As you see, we're, uh, we're over an hour already. So, <laughs> All right. Well, it's been nice to see you. We'll see you next week. Until then. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. They might be giants have been on the road for too long. Too long. And they might be giants aren't even sorry. Not even sorry. And audiences like the shows too much. Too much. And now they might be giants are playing their breakthrough album Flood. All of it. And they still have time for other songs. They're fooling around. Who can stop They Might Be Giants and their liberal rock agenda? Who? No one. This happens to pay for with somebody else's money. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry, 
We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.